0: Light it up on a Tuesday, Tuesday edition of Light the Tower on the Horn, live, local and digital on the Horn app and at hornfm.com. I am Jeff Howe, Craig Way, still on vacation. The play-by-play prodigy the MVP of Light the Tower, Cameron Parker behind the glass. Cam, you ready to rock and roll today?
1: I'm ready, Are you, are you
0: rocking and or rolling today?
1: Last day before the Big 12 Media Days.
0: Yeah, I'm still, uh, I'm still kind of puzzled by the Cliff Kingsbury salad reference that was made by E. Hogan at the very end of their show. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, I need to go. That's one we uh, need to go back and check the tape on that and see exactly what. W- was what said. was the
1: context?
0: Uh, Bucky was talking about how Cliff Kingsbury smells good or smelled good at Big 12 media days a few years ago. Naturally. And just a reminder of kind of where Cliff is and what he's doing. For those that don't know Cliff Kingsbury, fired at Texas Tech, accepted a job as the offensive coordinator at USC, then was hired by the Arizona Cardinals. Now he's back at USC for real this time, working under Lincoln Riley, uh, talking about just what Cliff was doing and. He said something. Cliff Kingsbury's name was mentioned, and there was a reference to tossing salad. Uh, And I'm not quite sure how it all connected. I was halfway listening, and so I need to check the tape and see exactly what was said. And the only reason I mention it is because it was on the Specs text line. And, yes, texter, I'm also confused. That's what was said. Specs text line is open 337-3776. Cam, we're going to do a Longhorn Notebook at the bottom of the hour. And it's going to be a preview of Big 12 Media Days. I know you're fired up and ready to talk about that. I've got the, or I told you the story that was published yesterday by 24-7 Sports that you can go to Horns 24-7 and get with all the publisher input to kind of preview the Big 12. We'll look at that and hybrid preview for Big 12 Media Days. All of that's going to be considered. So bottom of the hour for that. We've got a copy of Dave Campbell's Texas Football Magazine to give away on the show today. Also a Longhorn Notebook, and a Flex mention in the second hour. Inconceivable. All kinds of good stuff going on on the show today. Again, Specs text line is open 337-3776. Cameron, where do you want to start today? Because I kind of want to start with some Major League Draft.
1: Yeah, let's do it. I think uh, overall, a win for Texas yesterday.
0: Not completely out of the blue. No, I'm sorry. Not out of the blue. Not completely out of the woods yet. But I think the The pucker factor is significantly decreased for Longhorn baseball fans. Dylan Campbell goes in the fourth round of the Dodgers. Go ahead and assume he's not coming back. Lucas Gordon goes to the Chicago White Sox in the sixth round. Go ahead and assume he's not coming back. Travis Sikora starts the day going to the Washington Nationals, pick 71. Go ahead and assume he's not setting foot on the Texas campus. So those three, two are gone, one's not coming, but you know, you look at it, Cam, and you've got as close to a confirmation as possible from Will Gasparino, mm-hmm. the wiry outfielder from the state of California, who looks like he's coming to campus now, that he wasn't selected yesterday. The buzz from the folks like Kendall Rogers and the Jim Calluses and the Jonathan Mayos of the world is that Tanner Witt probably coming back to school at this point. That's what it looks like. Unless somebody... Here's the deal with the bonuses today, and again, I had to look it up yesterday at the house when I was watching draft stuff to get the number. For the 11th through the 20th round, the draft wraps up today. For any pick made in those rounds, any, any signing bonus total above $150,000 for a player is going to come out of the round 1 through 10 bonus pool money. So if they're going to draft, some some organization is going to draft a Tanner Witt or a LeBaron Johnson or a Will Gasparino, you know you're drafting them probably in the 11th or 12th round and thinking, hey, we're going to have to offer this guy part of our bonus pool money. And at that point, how much of the money do you want to offer that guy? So ultimately, we'll see what happens with those guys. But it's looking right now like all of those guys are going to be back. And one thing I didn't know about Tanner Witt, and this is just kind of my bad for not noticing, not recognizing it, not filing it away. On Tanner Witt, Cam, I did not – I failed to remember that Tanner Witt on the roster this year is listed as a redshirt sophomore. Mm -hmm. So Tanner Witt comes back next year as a redshirt junior, meaning he's still got plenty of leverage. He's basically – we talked about LBJ having all this leverage, that being a redshirt sophomore, he can come back and still have leverage next year. Tanner Witt's in the same boat, and I don't know how that just, I don't know, got a lot of things going on right now. Maybe it just passed me by, but that should make Longhorn fans feel a lot better that somebody would have to, in the alleged words of Will Wade, come with a strong-ass offer to get Tanner Witt to not come back to Texas. Looks like your high school signing class is going to be intact. The, the 11th round, really those, the first couple rounds, like 11 to 13, really that's where if, if you're going to have one of your high school guys get poached, that's where it's going to happen. Once you probably get to like the 14th round, you're in the clear at that point by and large, unless something just bizarre happens. But it's interesting like to hear, I think Jim Callis even said it point blank yesterday, like around the eighth round. saw a lot of college seniors get drafted a lot of JUCO guys, and he basically said for franchises, those are money savers because you're probably going to draft guys in the t- in the ninth and 10th round that you're going to need to allocate some bonus pool money for. So things looking pretty good for the Longhorns, Cam, like you said. Uh, looks like with the exception of Travis Decor, the signing class is going to be intact. It looks like you get with- – if you've got a starting rotation next year with Tanner Witt and LBJ at the front of it, you, you've got the makings right there. If You're thinking, okay, you can probably go compete for a conference championship with those two guys, and, and you've got a chance. You're going to give yourself a chance to win every series or at least win every series at least for the first two games to give yourself a chance to sweep on Sunday or give yourself a chance to get a series win on Sunday with those two guys heading up your rotation, if, in fact, it plays out that way. If you ask David Pierce, I don't know if yesterday could have gone any better.
1: Yeah, real quick on Secora, Jeff, for those wondering, well, he's a third-round pick, maybe we will come back. Well, the Nationals' first two rounds, their draft picks, Dylan Cruz and Morales from Miami, both seniors. They have no more eligibility left. So that's why the Nationals took Sikora in the third round because they could offer him a lot more money, which he was looking for. But, yeah, I think going in, you know, there was there was a, a realm where Wick is drafted, you know, maybe the third round, LBJ, top five, top six, and you're like, uh-oh. You know, now we're losing two pitchers, but I think the chances now that Witt and LBJ come back to shore up the pitching staff. And plus, now with you know a lot of transfers, we're kind of waiting to see where they would be picked and will be drafted, mm-hmm. what happens with them. So there's a couple guys. I think Chase Burns has not committed anywhere yet, the Tennessee transfer. I don't know if that's even a chance with Texas, but I think now with the draft kind of solidifying itself, we're going to see possibly a few more transfers, a few more moves in the portal for David Pierce because he can now build. You know, a contender, and I think he has to build a contender. And we yeah. haven't even talked about the, the announcement yesterday, Jeff, that you and Danny Davis broke out.
0: Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about that now. We we've got time. We're talking about baseball. So the Dave, David Pierce taking basically being his own pitching coach. Uh, I think I believe it was Orange Bloods that first mentioned that possibility of that happening, and I checked in with a source. I guess that would have been late last week. No, it was probably about a week ago now. I guess yeah, it was probably about a week ago. And I checked... Offline discussion about it, yeah. Yeah, checked with a source, and I was told nothing, nothing concrete, but I was told, keep in mind, David Pierce was his own pitching coach at Sam Houston. He was his own pitching coach at Tulane. And for the last, what, six seasons, he was on Wayne Graham's staff at Rice. He was the pitching coach. There was the hitting coach, and then transitioned into being the pitching coach. So... That move was kind of expected. I expected that to happen. He's obviously got experience doing it. Uh, you know, the Sean Allen thing was what it was and Cameron we had off-air discussions. And we were hearing that I don't want to say didn't see eye to eye, but we heard it maybe it was the honeymoon period was over with Woody Williams as pitching coach, well, probably in late March, early April. We started hearing that maybe 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 it's just not They're just not vibing the right way. And I'm not saying there was any, you know, volatile discourse, but just it didn't seem like it was necessarily maybe the fit that I think everybody thought it would be. And if you're David Pierce, if, you know, you're going to be involved in dealing with the pitchers anyway and you want somebody to have your mentality dealing with pitchers, you want somebody who can call a game in the way you want to call it, at some point maybe you're just better off doing it yourself. So that's what David Pierce is going to do. He's going to serve as the pitching coach. Uh, he does have Chris Gordon still on staff to help him. And I'll say this about Chris Gordon. I've heard nothing but good things since he came over from Duke as far as what he brings to the table from not just an analytic standpoint, not just an advanced metric standpoint, but also just kind of his gut feeling. I think he's somebody that David Pierce really trusts. So he is, I forget what Chris Gordon's official title is, but I believe it's director of... Uh, pitching and hitting development assistant
1: to the uh, pitching coach yeah
0: something like that please gives me Sean Watson flashback so let's not (laughs) let's not go too far down that road but I think that combination of Chris Gordon with his input David Pierce just with his natural feel for being a pitching coach and understanding nobody understands what he wants better than he does so that's part of it the big news was and started there were rumblings about this over the weekend and it's like, okay, we'll see kind of what it looks like. Troy Tulowitzki coming back as director of player development. Now, yeah. Car- Carly Todd had been director of player development. She is now sliding into the role of director of baseball operations, which actually she was technically doing both jobs last year, which is really – that that you need somebody that can do one of those jobs. You focus on this and you focus on this. It's really tough to do both those things. So Carly Todd, who's been a really big asset for the program, she's going to stick around as director of baseball operations – Tulo's back as director of player development. And Cam, I think this is... And I think it's key to remind everybody, it's not like Tulo has been just completely absent from the baseball program. Like, he's been around. Mm-hmm. And it seemed, honestly, man, it seemed like he and David Pierce got along really well for, you know, the really the two and a half years. Or it was Tulo got here in 2020 and started working. It, it was that fall, but, you know, we know what the 2020 season was abbreviated and contact between players and coaches and even amongst the staff, it was uh, fragmented, is uh, a good way to put it. What, I forgot what the word I used to – truncated. Everything was truncated Ooh. that season, yeah. I, I like uh, truncated was a word I used a lot in 2020 camp, but I digress. Uh, Tulo coming back, he's been around, but I think to have him around every day, I think for the players is huge, not just because of how good Tulo is, not just because of how good he was in that, in that role as a volunteer assistant, but now that Eric Kennedy – and Dylan Campbell are moving on, probably with the exception of Jack O'Dowd and Peyton Powell, you're going to have by far the majority of your roster that didn't have day-to-day dealings with Tulo like some of those other guys did. Those, In other words, those guys are gone. So I think it's a really good time for Tulo to be back in the program with two feet in the boat, knowing that now you've got a whole new group of players that now you can have – an impact on now you can kind of teach them what you told that other that older group, Silas Ardorn and Trey Faltini and the guys, uh Zach Zubias of the world, the guys that left. Now you have a chance to have that same kind of impact with a new group. So I think it's a perfect time for Tulo to come back. I do know everything I heard about Tulo was that his family really loved Austin. Didn't really want to leave. They he, he likes it here. And you know, it's gonna be a, a paid position for Tulo, that player, the director, of player development position. Not that Tulo needs the money. He's we have looked it up before and Tulo's, Tulo made a, a pretty nice live in playing pro baseball. But I think for what he wants and what he needs in terms of a full time role and what Texas needs, this is the best of both worlds, Cam. This is by far, even with the draft news and you know, the pitching coach thing finally being settled, this is the best news for Texas yesterday and again. I just think it's because of the impact he can have on a new group of guys he hasn't really dove it headfirst into working with yet.
1: Yeah, real quick, uh, Cruz and Yo-Yo are juniors, so they're seniors, still juniors. Thanks for the correction, the Specs text line. Uh, This Pierce move, the pitching coach, if you want something done right, do it yourself, right? (laughs) That's that's basically it. It's Mike Mike McCarthy and taking over the OC duties for Kellen Moore. I kind of feel it the same way. Um, Remember when he was at Rice, Jeff, as a pitching coach from, was it, 06, 2011? He had five seasons where his pitching staff ranked top 30 in the nation mm-hmm. at Rice. He had 27 pitchers that were drafted in the MLB draft, eight in the top 10 rounds. He had six All-American selections. So he has put together a great pitching resume from the beginning. And you mentioned the the, you know, the physio, uh, philosophical differences between uh, Woody, Will- Willie, Woody Williams, excuse me, and Sean Allen. And I mean, you mentioned it during the season in his press conferences. You know, you could tell that they weren't on the same page. They weren't vibing. Right. This is probably the right move for David Pierce if he wants to be successful. Because the pitching staff the last two seasons, Jeff, has been very inconsistent. You've had some great <laughs> moments.
0: Yeah, that's putting it lightly.
1: You've had some great moments, like you know, LBJ. And St. Morehouse in the postseason, you know, you had Bryce Elder's success, but then you've also had guys who've completely just, you know, fallen apart, beating the dead horse here, saying Aaron Nixon's name. But Aaron Nixon was the guy who was supposed to be the number two guy in the bullpen behind Tanner Witt, and just, you know, whatever happened between him, Sean Allen, and David Pierce did not gel well. And this season there was a handful of guys out of the bullpen. Now, of course, there were some injuries too that you can point to, but inconsistency? It's going to get you fired, and I think David Pierce realizes that this is a huge year, and as someone put on the Specs text line, it's a put-up-or-shut-up year for David Pierce, and I I fully believe it, especially with this move, Jeff, and you can, if you want to disagree with me, please, but it feels like this move right here is David Pierce putting all of his chips in on the table, going all in on himself as being the coach, because if he hires someone else this next season, he goes out and, and hires whoever, and it doesn't work, then he's on the chopping block for sure.
0: Yeah, especially going into the SEC where, you know, everybody knows what a a meat grinder that league is. That's a league where you can be a 500 team in that league and still be in a position to host a regional. But knowing the way, and I don't want to say the way the trajectory is going, but given kind of you take the pulse of of this fan base on this baseball program – you get to a point next year where you're 500 in conference play or below 500 in conference play. It's not going to sit well, or going excuse me into 2020 2025. I guess that would be that baseball season. If you're sitting there under 500 in conference play, yeah, no. they're not going to they're not going care if it's the SEC or not. All they're going to want to see is results at that point. So, I, I, but I, I think the way he's doing it, with making himself the pitching coach at a time where he's got a guy like Chris Gordon there to help out. Where he's got a guy who's been a head coach and Steve Rodriguez to handle a lot of the responsibilities with hitting and being a third base, uh, being a first base coach on top. of That's another thing, though. Does David Pierce now that he's the pitching coach is he no longer going to be the third base coach, and is that going to be Steve Rodriguez? And, mm-hmm. and how how are you going to kind of going to kind of work that? Uh, you know, Caleb Longley's a guy that's really valued as I, I assume is going to be your third assistant some point that hasn't been made official yet but you got to have a third assistant so kind of getting the house in order I just if you were going to do if you're going to do anything this is probably the best outcome that could have happened if David Pierce is going to take over the pitchers you've got a guy you trust in Steve Rodriguez Caleb Longley's trusted Chris Gordon's trusted and then bringing in Tulo back to kind of tie everything together I like the makeup of this staff Cam I don't I don't have a problem with it it could have been a lot worse we've seen we've seen worse in some sports on campus, so I I, I kind of dig what David Pierce did with all these moves. I think it to me it I see the method to the madness. It makes sense.
1: Percentage that Gilmet and Porter Brown come back.
0: Uh, Gilmet, it sounds like he was going to come back, uh, didn't participate in any of the senior day activities, and I didn't think he was that high of a draft pick. Porter Brown's interesting because he has graduated, so I don't know if he comes back for another year or moves on. It's all going to be determined by you know roster spots and. Percentage of scholarships and everything else in terms of what you've got and what you can give out and what you can promise a guy and what you what you're able to give a guy. So there, it's still there's still gonna be some things to to work out there. So
1: and on the recruit- I, I'd feel
0: better about uh, Gilmet coming back than Porter Brown
1: for sure on the recruiting class. So Pierce signed. It was num- number eleven recruiting class per perfect game. Um, that's a little bit. Uh, I wouldn't. It's, there's better recruiting classes, but remember a lot of those guys drafted will not be playing for right. the schools like Arkansas, um, LSU. Uh, actually, Vanderbilt, LSU was number 12. But for Texas, Will Gasparino, the kid out of Harvard-Westlake, he had the Let's Ride tweet. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he'll be back. The other guys, maybe the watch out for that could be drafted, I think uh, Cole Selvig, uh, out of I think he's out of Altoona, mm-hmm. um, a few other names. But it does seem like this is going to be a class that Pierce is probably going to get majority on campus outside Travis Secor. Whereas remember that number one recruiting class he signed two years ago where six, seven kids were drafted.
0: And last year you had like didn't make you, it on you, campus. Th- last year I think it was like three of your top guys ended up not coming to campus. Uh yeah, there was and there was that class where you had Brett Beatty taken. But that was you know if you're Texas and you're you're recruiting kids, you're you're gonna have one of those, you know, ever so often. A a Brett Beatty, uh Jared, it was Jared Kelly a few years Jared ago. Jared Kelly,
1: Jared Jones, Petey Halpin. Carson Tucker.
0: Was that the Corey Holland year? I didn't know. Did or was that know. earlier? No. Yeah. No, that was yeah, It Texas has been burned. The, the, the Corey Holland thing burned them because that was a, uh, that w- I think it was Corey Holland and Connor Capel, that they might have been in the same draft. Uh, but I know Corey Holland was like an 11th-round pick or a 12th-round pick, and I think I want to say it was Cleveland went above slot. It was the Cleveland or Cincinnati, I've slept since then, but – went way above slot and went into their bonus pool to to get him on campus, to get him in their, their organization. What I think mean?
1: it was t- – I'm trying to figure, find the year for it.
0: Corey Holland, I want to say that was maybe the 2018 draft, if I'm thinking right, or maybe this was the 2019 draft. I don't remember. But at any rate, uh, yeah. 2018. Was, so Holland was 18? Yeah. Okay. he was around 14. 14. What, uh, was it Cleveland that drafted him? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It was one of those Ohio franchises. Just couldn't remember off the top of my head. A
1: real quick nugget on. Actually, so I'll save it for Flex. Save it for Flex.
0: Oh, uh, you know, I didn't realize we were already uh, almost at the bottom of the hour. So I'll tell you what, we'll uh, take a break, come back. Big 12 Media Days preview. We'll start talking Texas football when we come back on Light the Tower, on the Horn, live, local, and digital, on the Horn app and at HornFM.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. edition of Light the Tower. I'm horn. Jeff Howe, Cameron Parker. Cam, I need you to step up as a producer and remind me what day it is because throughout the course of the show, I forget what day it is. I almost said Wednesday. It's Tuesday. But I know Wednesday, we're a big 12 Co- media day. It's true. It's days, plural, but it's day for us at the Horn because Texas only goes one day.
1: We're, we're in that weird part of the summer because it for me, during football, basketball season, I know what day it is based on when the game is. So it's like, oh, I have a game tonight. It's probably Tuesday or Thursday. Oh, Texas is playing tomorrow. It's probably Friday then. During the summer, nothing's going on. No idea. Like, Wimbledon's being played right now. <laughs> Is it Sunday? Is it Saturday? Is it Tuesday? We're making it Who through, knows?
0: Yeah, we're making it work. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and get to this hour's edition of the Longhorn Notebook. Jeff Howe's Longhorn Notebook. So, we talked about it. We're going to preview Big 12 Media Days. Go through a quick preview here. Cam, you had a list of things that you wanted to run down. And I'll, I'll coincide this with, the uh, again, the article that was released yesterday And I was one of the Big 12 publishers who provided input on this. Uh, Just kind of a 30,000-foot view of Big 12 predictions. And, Cam, some of this is going to tie in. So just go ahead as we preview media days and run down some of the things you wanted to cover today. I'll I'll give the floor to you.
1: So I wanted to do a primer and a list of questions for you. That excluded Texas and included Texas. Okay. So which one do you want to start with here? Do you want to go with ah,
0: – It's Longhorn Notebooks. So let's go include okay. include Texas. Why the heck not?
1: So then what is your most interesting storyline for the Longhorns the Big 12 Media Day tomorrow?
0: I think we talked about it yesterday, just how, how do they perceive the expectations. You say, okay, how are they going to handle the pressure? But I, I want to get a feel for the players and Sark on yeah. just how do they perceive it. Is it out of sight, out of mind? Is it business as usual? Has the demeanor changed at all? Because – that's one thing that you can say for the last two coaches. Charlie Strong's teams, whenever they experienced any, any measure of success, and again, during that, that time of Texas football, those three years, use that term loosely, any time they, they looked like they were trending in the right direction, they would quickly stub their toe. And as I'll never forget 2017 media days. I was talking to P.J. Locke. And he told me, he's like, yeah, he's like, we thought we were awesome last year. We beat Notre Dame, and we're 11th in the country. And these were his exact words. He said, then we go out to Cal and boo-boo all over ourselves, and it's not the same. Everything just unraveled real quick. So, and then we saw Tom Herman's tenure. It was you get any measure of success, and all of a sudden you you puff your chest out and think, okay, here we go. We're ready to take off, and then you get punched in the face. So, and then winning's hard. Yeah, so how does – this, this short measure of success, or not, it's not even success, it's just the fact that external expectations, really for the first time in Sark's tenure, are elevated to a level where they should be at Texas. Has it changed this coach? Has it changed these players? Has it changed how this group has gone about everything? Pretty much going back to January 2022, coming off that 21 season.
1: Inspects Specs Text Line, please weigh in on these questions as well. five one two three three seven, 3, 7, 7 6. What is your most interesting storyline for Texas? Uh, next question for you, Jeff. What player, it doesn't have to be the five who are going to Arlington uh, tomorrow, but what player on this Texas team has the most to prove in your eyes on the football field?
0: I think to me it's Alfred Collins uh, because you can be legitimately, you know, too deep on the interior defensive line with Byron Murphy – And Tavondre Sweat leading that group. But Broughton and Collins, they can either keep your ceiling relatively similar to where it was last season, or they can significantly elevate your season to where you could legitimately be the best defense in the Big 12. Mm -hmm. I I think it's I think those two, but Collins specifically, those two guys are that important. So I, I would say there's three. It's Collins. It's Terrence Brooks. And then for me on offense, it's Isaiah Nayer. Okay. His re- his recovery from the knee, because we talk about how deep this receiving group is. It's infinitely deeper if you get Nayer back. Because, again, I'll go back to some stuff we talked about on the Longhorn Blitz last summer. You know, Matt Butler and I looked at the PFF numbers, and we compared Nayer's profile. If you look at some of Nayer's advanced statistics in terms of yards per route run, uh, you know, uh, What's the other one I'm thinking of? Average depth, average depth of target. Isaiah Nayer's numbers were comparable to what Xavier Worthy did as a freshman. And you think Nayer did that at you know six three, two hundred pounds with that kind of vertical speed and playmaking ability? Plus, you look at things like contested catch rate and how good he was there. Nayer's profile is real similar to Gabriel Davis the Bills. A real similar. You look at Davis's numbers at UCF like the real similar. So there, that, that's one of the many things that made Nayer intriguing. We obviously didn't see that last year. But, man, if you get that guy back on top of Xavier Worthy no longer having a strong hand, he's got two healthy hands, with the addition of A.D. Mitchell and the return of Jordan Whittington, this, this receiver group, it could easily be one of the deepest in the country.
1: Nayer had almost 900 receiving yards in 2021, his last season at Wyoming. 44 receptions. What was he like at 844, I think?
0: 878.
1: 878. I don't know if we'll have that type of production at Texas, especially with how deep this room is, but if you get even a glimpse of that, I'm right with you, Jeff. And and there was a report, actually, I believe it was was from the Insider piece last week about Nair, and a source on the team said, the speed's there. The speed is there. And that's, I think, a part that's been lacking on Texas, right? We talk about the deep ball, and that's been beat to death. But, you know... For whatever reason, between yours and Worthy, it just wasn't working. Now you could talk about maybe it's Worthy's broken hand. You know, Ewers just not putting in the work. Whatever, Nayer has the speed, and if he's healthy, if he's you know, I don't I don't know he'll be at one hundred percent this season, Jeff, because coming off that injury, yeah, that's really tough. Mm-hmm. That's really tough. Even I wouldn't if,
0: expect him to be up running hundred percent by the time you go to Tuscaloosa. Yeah, you know, but if he if like by the Oklahoma game,
1: that speed, that straight line speed is there. And that deep ball is there. I think it's Nair in yours that'll be connecting on the deep ball. It won't be. It won't be worthy, worthy in, in yours like we've been. That Sark's trying to force down our throats the last few years because he hasn't really had any other options to go to the deep mm-hmm. ball with. I think Nair can be that guy.
0: Don't don't discount Jonte Cook and the impact yeah. he could have. Oh, just he's on. nasty. I mean, uh, you go back to, like the Devin Duvernay's freshman year. Duvernay had what like 16 catches that year, and I think like five of them were for touchdowns had several plays of 60-plus. The other thing I would mention, too, and I don't know if this is going to relate to something that you'll get to here in a sec, Cam, but I also think I heard Bucky and Aaron talking about it this morning, You know, the ability to run the football and and get into your play-action game and open things up that way if you can have a truly complete offense. To me, it's less about running the ball per se and more about can Quinn Ewers have a grasp and a command of Sark's offense to an extent that your entire RPO game is available to you. So they didn't run as many RPOs last year as you would think, and that's really when Sark's offense, when it really gets clicking, man, the RPO is a huge part of it. So I think, not that's not necessarily the deep ball part of it, but I think the RPO game, if it's on point, that can really open up a lot of stuff if Quinn's ready to operate that at a really high level.
1: Last question for you. I asked you about the most interesting storyline on this Texas team. But what Coach, or well, Sark included, but what player are you most interested in hearing from and, and what question are you ready to ask? I, Quinn, Quinn. Quinn.
0: Quinn. Because we can talk about the running backs, we can talk about the offensive line, talk about the defense. If he doesn't take steps forward and make progress and starts getting on an upward trajectory, it's not that everything we talked about before that is moot or everything around it is moot, but your ceiling is not a championship caliber ceiling if you don't have the right guy pulling the trigger. It's just period. point. That's just how I feel about it. I've I've seen too many Texas football seasons derailed by not having competent quarterback play or upper level of the conference quarterback play. And and I I think Quinn Ewers is a capable quarterback, but with especially with losing Bijan and Roshan, missing that part of your offense. Capable is not going to be good enough. And I know everybody is, not everybody, but there are, there's a portion of this fan base that is really intrigued by Malik Murphy. Uh, Malik Murphy, may be, he may be the second coming of Patrick Mahomes. He may be the second coming of you know Tyrone Swoops. I don't know. But the fact is, if you go to a freshman quarterback, now you're starting that process, that development process all over again. And in the year where you're trying to win a conference championship, that's not a place where you want to be. Who knows? Maybe he he could come in and set the world on fire, and be an answer. But you're better off. Your odds of your odds of getting to Arlington are much better if Quinn Ewers takes the necessary steps to be to reach his ceiling, which I think his ceiling is Big Twelve Offensive Player of the Year. Which at that point, that's putting you in. An all-American discussion, a national awards candidate discussion. That's the level Quinn Ewers needs to raise his play to.
1: Dane Brugler of the Athletic had a piece that went up. I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, but it was basically a 2024 draft class, especially about the quarterbacks. We already we already know Kill Williams will be number one. That's mm-hmm. what, you know he could spend the entire season throwing with his left hand. He's going to be going number one. Number two, you know it's probably going to be Drake May, but that number three spot. Which is, you know, I think kind of open for grabs. You know, a lot of people talk about JJ McCarthy, but you know, it can be Quinn Ewers. And, and in this piece, Ewers is ranked; he's ranked fifth. And a lot of that is because of his erratic season last year. And I understand that. But you know, in in Dane's piece, his point was he's a guy that he can be the number three pick, number three quarterback taken off the board. I you, think behind
0: uh, Williams and Drake, Drake May. May. Yeah, yeah. So who it, does he it, have in front of Quinn right now?
1: McCarthy outside of Maine Williams McCarthy and then the quarterback from um Duke Riley Leonard. we mm-hmm. We'll we'll see. In the last Duke quarterback that came out was uh Danny Dimes. Danny
0: Dimes, baby.
1: But I think the point with that I, I think yours going number th- as this third quarterback being taken off the board, that goes hand in hand with Texas being successful. Mm-hmm. Because if he does not make that jump, does not make that jump this season, you know whether it's injuries or maybe Malik Murphy comes in, or whatever, but if Texas does not make that jump it's probably because Quinn Ewers did not live up to the expectations that we thought he was.
0: There's, there's a lot of parallels you can draw between where Quinn Ewers is right now, and I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating, where, you, where Quinn is right now and like where Chris Sims was going into 2001. Where you've seen the flashes yeah, good comparison you know you've seen you've seen some growth like Chris Sims, you go back and watch the 2000 season. there were times where he was just playing flat out not good, but then major gets hurt late in the year at tech and then Sims plays those last couple of games, lights out in in a win over a and m and actually, I think he had four picks in the bowl game, but you know you look at how well he played down the stretch. He's a drop by Roy Williams and a drop by B.J. Johnson away from maybe outdueling Joey Harrington in that Holiday Bowl. Yeah. So, and and everybody was excited about Sims going into 2001, but as good a year as Chris Sims had in 2001, what do you remember about him that season? The Oklahoma game Mm -hmm. where he didn't play well and the meltdown against Colorado in the Big 12 championship game. That's kind of where Quinn is. You've seen the flashes. You've seen what it looks like when he – like Quinn's first quarter against Alabama – that's pro. That's all the 2022 version of the Chris Sims third quarter against AM in 2000. <laughs> no, it is, man. Go go back, Cam. I want you to go back and watch that. Like go down to rabbit uh, hole. More homework. Go find go find that go find that get game on YouTube. You can find it because we did a, a Longhorn Blitz watch along during COVID with that game because Rod was in that game and it's a, a lot of a lot of really good Longhorns were in that game and. We're watching it, and you watch Sims in that third quarter, man, and he – look, there's there's a couple – there's one of those touchdowns where, like, he just throws, like, a hitch to Sloan Thomas and Sloan breaks a tackle and then just boom goes up the sideline. Man, he throws a, a bomb to B.J. Johnson. He throws a a slant just like – I'm talking like a Brett Favre fastball to Roy Williams, and you just watch him deal in that third quarter. It's one of the best quarters a Texas quarterback has ever had. And I think that's kind of the the first quarter, first half. Quinn was on track to having against Alabama, so I just the parallels between Quinn, yours, and Chris Sims is is really intriguing for me. But that's that's it for me. We could talk about all the other stuff and all the there's a lot of other stuff that's important. But if you don't, if your quarterback doesn't get to the level where you expect him to be, where you need him to be, nothing else really matters.
1: So let me ask you this: if if Texas goes 8-5 and five this season, whatever, doesn't have the season that Texas fans wanted, doesn't make the Big 12 championship game, what do you think would have had to go wrong for that to happen?
0: I, I think the three, the three things I've talked about that I think are the three things that could hold this team back. One of them I just talked about. Quinn, Quinn's, yes. de- Quinn's, development, the Quinn's development does not go on an upward trajectory. It's still peaks and valleys. Sark's game management doesn't improve. That it's it's a detriment. And there are games where you lose where it's clock management or kind of wasting possessions like we've seen happen with Texas sometimes. That's what it feels like. So Sark's ability to manage a game. Uh, and then the defense doesn't take the steps forward that we think they're going to take. The, the ceiling for the defense is lowered. And that could be the Terrence Brooks's and Alfred Collins of the world not stepping up. It could be Man, the Gary Patterson factor is is a lot stronger than what we thought it was. So, there's a couple of different things at play, but I think it's those those three things: Quinn yours, Sark managing the game, and then the defense as a whole just not really, not truly elevating from where it was last year.
1: I feel good about pretty much every other positional group. Quarterback is the one question mark. Although I'm, I feel confident in Quinn's progression based on what we've heard out of Quinn, out of the team, the players, maybe. That weak side linebacker spot, because you know losing over Sean, I think it's going to be pretty big. Who will step up? It's it Anthony Hill. Will it be a combination of Hill, uh, Blackwell, whoever, uh, David I think Benda. that's
0: probably what it is, and maybe Anthony Hill takes that yeah. over at some point. And then
1: the edge spot. I, I think the, the the middle, the defensive line is going to be solid. The edge is who will step up. Uh, Specs, text line, chiming in their most interesting storyline. Uh, for this one, can Quinn yours live up to his high school ranking and lead this team to win sometimes in spite of play calling? And that goes back to what you were saying, Jeff, about game management from Sark. But I think also Sark was also kind of hamstrung, again, because he had to play, was a 22 personnel a lot, um, two wide outs? No, they
0: play a lot of 12 personnel. 12, you know, sorry. One running, still, back, one running back, yeah. two tight ends, yeah.
1: 12 personnel, which, you know, isn't great. Like especially against some of these three three five defenses, you had one receiver who you could count on who had a broken hand. Basically, the defenses could kind of you know go after Bijan. Oh,
0: well, twelve personnel should work against. In theory, it should work against the the three safety defense. The thing that you got to remember about how the run game structured against a three safety defense, how it needs to how it needs to function, is. That third safety is basically a glorified. It's a glorified safety. He's basically a linebacker, and 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 that safety, especially like you go back and look at like what Greg Eisworth did for Iowa State, he was so good as that third safety because he fit the run so well, and the way that that Iowa State and the way John Haycock teaches it, the way they fit the run, that's why that's why they're so good. They got some athletes, but the way they fit the run and, and you watch them on tape, it's they execute it almost flawlessly. It can lull you into thinking you can run the ball. How you need to how you need to run it doesn't really matter about formations or personnel groupings, how you need to run against a three safety defense because it takes them a minute to read and fit the run. That's why a zone run game doesn't work that successfully against that three safety defense. You got to hit it downhill and you got to hit it hard. I go back and watch where Texas started having success against Iowa State. Bijan makes a lot of things happen on his own, so you almost have to just forget. Like, well, B- Jeff, Bijan had some successful zone runs. Yeah, go back and look at how much of that was him making a guy miss in the hole yeah, behind or the him scrimmage. him breaking a tackle. He's a freak. Like, you just got to take that part out of the equation. But when they really started moving the ball in the second half is when they started giving it to Roshan and just pounding the ball in between the B gaps, the B gap, A gap runs, just getting downhill and hitting it hard. That's what you've got to do against that three-safety defense to not let them have time to fit the run not let it have time to progress.
1: Do you see anyone on this roster defensively that can turn into a dominant edge rusher from the Specs-Tax line?
0: I want to I see what Baron Sorrell can do for an encore. Because he had a really productive year last year, quietly. Because Jalen Ford yeah. was so good, and the interior D-line was so good, and, and we talked a lot about – Made all – preseason uh, all Big 12. You know, we talked, yeah, we talked a lot about Ryan Watts and, and kind of Anthony Cook's emergence of safety, but I, I don't know that we talked enough about Baron Sorrell – and the job he did, we had five, five and a half sacks yep. last year. But it seemed like it did seem like the, the presence wasn't as consistent as it needs to be to. Cause you know, there's a lot of times where if you're if you're getting pressure and you're consistently getting pressure at some point, the sacks will be there. The sacks will come. So if Baron Sorrell to me, if he's a more like eight and a half this year, Cam, somewhere around there, like seven, let's say between seven and a half and nine and a half, somewhere on that scale. Then I think that'll means he's just doing a more consistent job of disrupting the quarterback.
1: Yeah, the, the, so I don't
0: know if do, I don't know if they're gonna have a dominant edge guy, but Baron Sorrell can be like a first or second team All Conference type guy. I, I I'd like to think he can.
1: It can definitely be top two defensive line in the Big Twelve if if they reach their ceiling and if they put that consistency together. You mentioned Alfred Collins, Sorrell's right there too. Maybe who who steps up? Vernon Broughton. Dre Bledsoe there's a lot of guys and also the addition of Trill Carter in the middle. I mean, we've heard great things about Trill Carter. Don't forget about, you know, Collins and everyone else. Um, DeFondre Sweat, you know, coming back yeah. for another year. It could be a really solid defensive line if someone on the edge can really step up and that guy maybe is Baron Sorrell.
0: Yeah. We'll get to some of your feedback on the specs text line, uh, and hour number two. Wanna do two things right now though. Coming up in Inconceivable, we will uh we're gonna get to this salad issue involving Cliff Kingsbury from B and E this morning because I've gotten a dispatch from one Bucky Godbolt and oh gotten boy. some cla- gotten some clarification do we need, do we have, on what was said. Do we need Bucky to call in? No, I just I, I don't I'm gonna trust Bucky and uh, other textures have backed up Bucky's statement, so we'll go with that. Uh, we'll get to Inconceivable. After Inconceivable, when we end Inconceivable. So at the end of next segment, we will give away our copy of Dave Campbell's Texas Football. So make sure you're by the phone when we end Inconceivable at the end of hour number one. We'll get to all that when we come back here on Light the Tower on the Horn. Live, local and digital on the Horn app and at hornfm.com. Light
1: like the Tower with Craig Way and Jeff Howe.
0: Inconceivable. 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 You keep using the horn. I don't think it means what you think thinking. All right, so before Cam gets to his one bit... Let me just say, Bucky Godbolt sent a text on the Cliff Kingsbury confusion. Bucky said, Cliff smelled like a fresh salad, apparently, is what the phrase was used this morning. Fresh salad. Fresh salad. I've never, I can't really tell you what a fresh salad smells like, but apparently, that's how Cliff Kingsbury was described.
1: Like, garden salad... Caesar salad.
0: And and CB chimes in and says, Bucky always said Cliff Kingsbury smelled like a fresh tossed salad every year at Big 12 Media Days. Do with that whatever you Uh, wish. okay. Okay. I knew I heard something regarding salad, and it sounded kind of unsavory. So, there you have it. So, Jeff,
1: which uh, Big 12 coach will most likely smell like a tossed salad? On Wednesday or
0: Thursday. Uh, let me let me think about the list of Big Twelve coaches. Who do we have in the league? Um, I'm gonna guess. Uh, you know, potentially Matt Campbell. Maybe okay. he's a younger guy. Maybe he might smell like cucumber when you walk by him. I don't know. <laughs> How about this? I'm gonna take. I'm gonna immediately take Chris Kleiman and Sonny Dykes out of the running for that. Yeah. Probably going to remove Gus Malzahn and Dana Holgerson yeah, from that Dana that mix. for sure.
1: Gundy uh, for sure.
0: Scott Satterfield, I don't know. Don't know that much about Scott Satterfield. Kehlani Satake of BYU, I'd probably remove him from that mix. i think like Matt Campbell? Maybe Joey Maguire?
1: I could see Scott Satterfield. I mean, okay. he's 50, but he, he looks a young 50.
0: I've been around Joey Maguire a lot, and, and fresh salad is not yeah. anything I've smelled. No, so. no. Uh, yeah, so there it is.
1: Okay, we'll we'll update the listeners on, on like Thursday. The,
0: like the pecan berry salad at uh, at McAllister's delis that we were talking about. You ever had that can? The pecan no. berry salad, it's
1: pretty good. Are there McAllister's in Austin?
0: I don't know, uh, there's one in San Marcos. Okay, I don't frequent it, but every now and then, but summertime is a really good time for salads. And we went to Texas Roadhouse for dinner after the Astros game, and I'm like, you know, I don't want a steak, I just I really want a salad I had a really good grilled chicken salad
1: what's so. the salad situation like at poncho's so I know the night when I uh, take if you're going to
0: ponchos you're not you're not getting salad okay Pancho's, yeah. <laughs> just skipping that throw go ahead and throw away uh health recommendations okay okay so then a texture said Bucky said that but he definitely said toss salad so I was right the textures are right Bucky's right we may have to go back and play the tape an hour yeah, or two, but Cam, have to. you've got an Inconceivable for us as we roll along.
1: Yeah, it's not Inconceivable without golf, right, Jeff? As I know everyone says. So today, the U.S. Senate is meeting the subcommittee with the PGA Tour, DP World Tour in the uh, Saudi Arabia's Those jokers investment. not really
0: not have anything better to do? Probably not. Okay. Probably not.
1: Now, um, the Saudi Arabia officials- All our Arabia problems officials- in this country
0: are solved, so it's looking to live golf, but- Go ahead, Kim. I apologize.
1: Well, we'll get into why they're looking into it, but Saudi Arabia they uh, they declined to appear at this subcommittee. No Shocker. surprise, but uh, some documents have been released that went public today. They're meeting uh, this morning, and these documents released regarding the planned alliance suggested that Roy McIlroy met with Yasir Al Ruman, who is the governor of Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund in Dubai. Last November. Now, this is interesting because remember, Rory is pretty anti-Liv. But apparently, allegedly, Rory did meet with Saudi Arabia's governor. Now, also in these documents, it's been outlined the plan that Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy in this new merger would control their own Live Golf teams, and this would also mean that Greg Norman would be pushed to the side in an "quote-unquote" advisory role. So we'll see. That's just an idea, not necessarily what's going to happen. It's not like when a
0: coach gets fired and he's like, well, he's going to be a special assistant to the athletic director. Yeah, "Yeah, We're basically going to pay, give him an office and pay him a nice salary to just do nothing.
1: Bruce Arians after uh, Tom Brady had him fired. Now, Jeff, you asked, like, why in the world does the U.S. Senate care about this stuff? So um, Greg Blumenthal, or Richard, sorry, uh, Richard Blumenthal out of Connecticut. He is the uh, he was the governor, right, who's in charge of this committee. Today's hearing is about much more than the game of golf. He said in his opening remarks this morning, it's about how a brutal, repressive regime can, by influence, indeed even take over a cherished American institution to simply cleanse its public image, a.k.a. sports washing. Also, Terry Strada, the national cheer of 9-11 Families United, who are at the hearing now, why are they there, Jeff? Well, because when the whole live golf stuff was going on, Jay Monahan, the PJ Tour commissioner.
0: Oh, I forgot. He stuck his foot in his mouth. Stuck his
1: foot in his mouth yeah. talking about how the guys who were going from the PJ Tour, the live the defectors, were turning their back on their country and turning their back on those who were hurt by 9-11. Yeah, I guess not anymore. Um, they are there. They said today Today we're watching a truly spectacle as the PJ Tour is effectively turning over the game of golf to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, not lying, because if this goes through uh, Saudi Arabia, going to have a PJ Tour event uh, somewhere in their own country. So a lot's going to come from this uh, hearing, Jeff, because if the U.S. Senate decides to um, blow up this merger, then that's, probably, that's pretty much going to destroy the PJ Tour. If they allow it to go through, Golf will, I guess, once more be connected, but Saudi Arabia is going to be a big, big player in it.
0: You know, when it comes to the government, when it comes to Congress, I feel like senior drill instructor Hartman in Full Metal Jacket, I do not look down on Republicans, Democrats, or independents. To me, you're all equally worthless. (laughs) Of all the things, of all the things we could be concerned about in this country, Protecting the integrity of the game of golf is a it's it's a national security matter. All of a sudden,
1: so your team, I don't really care what happens.
0: Yeah, public education, who cares? Let the kids fend for themselves. Yeah, amazing, amazing. It's gonna do it for hour number one. Hour number two will start in earnest on the other side. Light the tower on the horn. Live locally and digital on the Horn app and at hornfm.com.